following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We have to begin this morning with a public confrontation. See, there is a family in this church, of all families, that loves to get the attention. They love to be the center of absolutely everything. They love for people to notice them. And so they just couldn't handle it when last Sunday I had to announce, or I didn't have to, but I chose to, had the privilege of, I should say that carefully, announcing Mike and Andrea DeBolt's uh, birth. And I made the statement while I was you know, doing that that they had a great story. You should hear that story. And I noticed when I was saying that that Mark leaned over to Stephanie and he whispered something. <laughs> and I didn't know what it was that he had whispered, but I found out later that it was like, oh yeah, we can beat that. And so this week, Mark and Stephanie decided to top their story and to take over uh, local news. Was that Monday? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, wait, I skipped one somehow there. There we go. So there was Wavy from my phone. There was the newspaper, uh, birth by the side of the road, heroic, amazing. Everyone was talking about it. Our own local celebrities here. In fact, uh, Mark was the hero because not only did he deliver his own child, but then he had to, like, pull the, the shoelace out of his shoe to, to tie off the umbilical cord. I mean, he did everything. He even said, if you don't know what he, he he's a car salesman over at uh, Hall Acura, if you need a car, go see him. He said his new slogan is, I do it all at Hall. That's his, <laughs> that was from him. And so fine, you guys win, okay? You got the, you got the prize, best thing. In fact, uh, why don't, Mark, you do the honors now of introducing us to your new one? This is little Paul Montana that was born on Monday at 650, so uh, he played the birth date backwards. Ish. Let's give him a round of applause. Now, we're going to do one more thing here. We've never done this, ever, at Cornerstone. In my, at least not that I haven't. And I need help for this one. Pietro, would you come up here, please? No, seriously, Pietro's coming up to help. I had to ask Pietro. I was like, just, it's appropriate now. So we, we, we bought a gift for you, okay? We've never done this for a new baby. We felt, Mark, given your heroic sacrifice that morning, we wanted to honor that on behalf of Cornerstone with a new pair of shoelaces. So Pietro, would you do the honors for us? Let's give him another round of applause. <laughs> Pietro beforehand was like, why do I keep getting him pulled into these things? I don't You're like legend now, man. You're We started calling him Jared's valet. Um, that's a Downton Abbey joke, sorry. All right, today is part two of a uh, two-part sermon here in this section of Mark chapter 9 that we commonly refer to as the story of the transfiguration. I said it's part two, which means that if you weren't here last week, you missed part one. I'm sorry. Uh, You really need to go back and listen to that one if possible because these aren't two different sermons from one passage. It's actually one sermon from one passage that was just too long to preach in one setting, and so I broke it up. So I'll give you a a brief recap here at the beginning, but, but... Go back and listen. It will be helpful. And so just like we do every week, we're going to begin by reading uh, our passage for this morning, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. We look at Mark chapter 9, verse 2. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Jesus, please glorify yourself this morning. Spirit, please glorify the Father and Son this morning. May we, as we look at this passage, as we consider the truths that are here, be reminded that our boast, our hope, our glory, everything that we trust in and believe in is rooted in the glory of the cross. May, may the, the suffering of our Savior be the thing that we place all of our hope in, not in ourselves, not in our righteousness as if we had any, but, but in Jesus and Jesus alone, because this was your plan, God, from the beginning of time to sacrifice your son for us. So may we see this, be reminded of this, and glory in this this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I began it last Sunday by acknowledging an unfortunately sad truth that for many of us, I think, in our day and age, probably all of us to some extent or another, we have this desire to enjoy the benefits and blessings of okay, things, fill in the blank, whatever you want to put in there, without having to go through all of the toil and the pain and the sacrifice and the effort and the work that's associated with those things. And so whether it's losing weight or getting your finances in shape, marriage, parenting, I mean, you pick the topic, it applies to all of them. It seems evident that we want all of the good without having to endure any of the bad. And I also told you last Sunday that this is, in a sense, the very sentiment that we find at work here in this section of Mark's gospel. Since Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Mark has been attempting to show us that this man, Jesus, is not just another ordinary man. In fact, he's much more than that. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one promised by God in the Old Testament who was going to come and make all things right and new again. He was going to restore all things. And while that sounds all good and simple, the reality is, is that making such a claim raises a number of questions that we have to, to, to process. I mean, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? What exactly does that entail? What exactly is he going to do? And you hear those questions, and I said this last Sunday, you're like, I, I know that stuff. Man, I grew up in church my whole life. I, I went to Sunday school. I got that. But the disciples would have said they had it as well. I mean, they went to synagogue, and they went to Saturday school, and, and they thought they had all the answers as well. Yeah, a couple of you get that one later. They went to Saturday school, and they, they thought they understood it, but Mark wants us to see that they didn't. 
And so to show us that, he takes this entire subsection that we're in right now to show us these wrong expectations, wrong beliefs about the Messiah that the disciples had and to correct those for us. And to do this, he utilizes the following flow. I gave this in detail last week. I'm just putting it up here at once today. But he, he, he starts in chapter 8, verse 22, with a story of blindness, and he ends in chapter 10 with a story of blindness. These bookends of blindness kind of, kind of put the whole section in a context of what, what are you going to find when you read here? You're going to find a lot of blindness related to exactly who Jesus is and what it means to say that he's the Christ. And so to show us that, Jesus begins that subsection by saying, well, who am I? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the right answer, you're the Christ, but he, he means the wrong thing. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is that promised one from God. But the disciples mean something very, very different. You've got to understand this. If you don't get that point, you're going to miss everything between chapter 8 and chapter 10. They mean something very different by that than Jesus does. They are expecting that this will mean glory and power and greatness and authority for Jesus as the Christ. And please note this as well, it will mean glory and power and greatness and authority for them as well because they are followers of the Christ. They think this kingdom that Jesus has been announcing is going to bring all those blessings and benefits to them now. And Mark wants us to see this. And so, to show us their wrong expectations, Mark records three specific detailed uh, foretellings of Jesus' suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Three, boom, boom, boom. And, and even though he's very clear each time, his words do not register with the disciples. Not at all. Because after each foretelling, the disciples blow it, right? Each, each failure is immediate. Uh, each failure is big. Each failure is directly related to some aspect of their wrong understanding of who the Messiah is and what it's going to mean for him to bring in his kingdom. And each failure is followed by a correction from Jesus that is specifically related to their failure, to the wrong expectation that was expressed by their failure. Okay, you remember all that? Does that make sense? You understand what we're doing here? And so last week we picked up right after the first foretelling of Jesus' death in chapter 8, verse 31, uh, with the very first failure. Peter rebuked Jesus. He told him, you're wrong to say that you're going to suffer and be rejected and die. And that's because Peter thinks that Jesus is going to go out and be the conquering king. And so Jesus gave a whole list of what it's actually going to mean to follow him. You're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and forfeit the world and not be ashamed of me. And that must have been very confusing for them to hear because they're going, well, why would that be true? Why, why would we ever have to deny ourselves or pick up our crosses or not be ashamed of you? You're the king and we're going to go forth and, and establish your kingdom with you. Aren't we going to conquer and rule and reign? How? This is the question, How? Can the glory that the disciples are expecting and the defeat that Jesus is describing possibly go together? They, they can't make it fit in their minds. And no matter how they're, they're thinking about it, it just, doesn't, it just doesn't work. They don't see it. And so Jesus shows it to them in a very specific way. He shows it to them. Visibly shows it to them so they can see it. One, or he does it in a way that would have probably seemed strangely familiar to them if they had thought about it. And I noted this last time that he's very specific. First with the timing. It's six days after what he said in chapter 9, verse 1. He's specific with the participants. Three men accompany Jesus, Peter, James, and John. 
He's specific with the location, not in terms of like a, a specific place, but a type of place, up on a, a mountain, a mountaintop. They go up by themselves, and he's specific with what happens to Jesus when they reach the top. He is transfigured before them. In class, I told you last Sunday, I'm not a big fan of the word transfigured. I think it's kind of confusing because we don't use that word a lot. I said I think there's a better English word we could use. What was it? Okay, metamorphosed. That's the correct past tense of that, by the way. Metamorphosed. I looked it up. Uh, that's because the Greek word here is metamorpho. And it's describing a complete change in form from one thing to another thing. Jesus is not just going through some kind of a cosmetic change. We're talking about a drastic, almost unbelievable kind of change. I feared after I got home last Sunday and started thinking about this a little more that I didn't do a good job of trying to drive home that particular point. Because I'm afraid we're going to go home and think of Jesus like as a light bright. Remember light bright? Loved light bright. You had the peg and it was like red, but, but then you plugged it into the board and that was like bright red. Like, like we think of Jesus as if he's just like regular Jesus and then bright Jesus. Like, no, it's not exactly it. I, it's hard to explain, I think, exactly what's going on here because I don't think the gospel writers can exactly explain what's going on. Because in every case where they even try... The only thing they ever do is they, they describe Jesus in terms of a pure light. He's changing from whatever he looked like to begin with, just like a regular guy, and now, boom, light, pure light. And while I don't know for certain, I, I, I think I'm right about this, I'm assuming I'm right about this, I'm guessing that he must have begun to look like what he looked like prior to the incarnation, before he came to earth as a, as a baby. What did he look like then? Well, Pure, dazzling light is probably about as good of a description as we're going to get anywhere else in Scripture. And so, so this is what happens to Jesus. It must have been amazing. What happened next must have been even more amazing. Mark tells us now two other specific individuals joined them on the mountaintop, Elijah and Moses. And I gave you two reasons why. One, it's because these two men, more than any other, are like the embodiment of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They now come to Jesus as if all of God's revelation has been pointing to this day. But number two, and more specifically, these two guys, more than any other, were associated with the coming of God's kingdom in the minds of the Jews of Jesus' day. The Old Testament prophets talk about it. The, no doubt the disciples, rabbis, had taught them this as they were growing up. And so if you put yourselves in, in their shoes, if we are them, if we know what they know, and if we expect what they expect, and now you're on a mountaintop and Jesus is shining like the sun and Moses and Elijah are there. What are you thinking? You are thinking that the, that the Messiah, the God's kingdom, that the great and awesome day of the Lord has finally come, right? Glory and power, this is it. This is everything you've hoped for is coming to pass before your very eyes. But it's at this point, as I noted last Sunday, and this is kind of where we're picking up now, getting back into the text, that Mark records an interesting detail when he tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. Remember this? And the question here was, what exactly are they talking about? And Mark doesn't record it. He assumes, I guess, that the context later will make it clear, and it does, but, but since Luke does record it, let's just turn to Luke and see exactly what it is we're talking about. In Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, Luke writes this, and behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And again, just think about this. Moses and Elijah, 
these two characters associated with the, the totality of the Old Testament, these two harbingers of the great and awesome day of the Lord, now appear before Jesus, who's been transformed into probably something uh, uh, similar to his heavenly glory, to talk with him about his death, his suffering, and his rejection, and his, his resurrection, maybe even his ascension, his departure, as Luke simply refers to it there in Luke chapter 9, that he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Can, can you see how confusing this must have been? to them? And you might say, well, how do, how do we even know that? I mean, how do we even know that they heard? Maybe Jesus and Moses and Elijah huddled up and they're whispering to each other. Well, I'd remind you that Luke isn't on the mountain. Luke's not even a disciple. Luke is known, his gospel and his, in the book of Acts, are known for him being a careful student who goes out and interviews and compiles information. So one of these three guys on the mountain is telling Luke this, and Luke is writing it down for us because they remembered it and he wants us to know it as well. And so, yes, these guys heard what they were talking about up on the mountain, and it, and it must have been a lot to process. And so, Peter does the only thing he knew to do at that moment, right? He talked. Because whenever Peter doesn't know what to do, Peter talks. He says, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Uh, why does he say this? Well, if you were to study this out, if you were to read 10 different commentaries or, or scholars who are writing about this passage, do you know how many different answers you would get to the question of why he's saying this? 10, maybe 9, but 10, yeah. Well, he's saying this because he's referencing the Old Testament uh, festival of booths or tents, and he wants to worship God at this moment. The other guy's like, Peter wants to remain on the mountaintop in the glory and presence of God and experience this closeness in this wonderful moment forever. Uh, in my opinion, humble or not, none of those opinions matter because in the very next sentence, Mark explains this for us quite sufficiently. He writes, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. In other words, Peter isn't thinking carefully or critically about what he's saying and its significance at this moment. He's just saying something because he feels like he should, which is funny, right? If you think about this, like I was trying to picture this this week. I was thinking about Peter, and I'm like, here he is. One of the gospel writers says they were kind of sleepy before this all began. So I'm picturing Peter drowsy. He's on the mountaintop, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, ooh, Jesus, he's shining. Oh, Moses, Elijah, they're here. What are they talking about? I, I got to say something. Uh, uh, tense. And you're like, really, Peter? That was the best you could come up with? Not like, you know, praise the Lord or hallelujah or this is amazing. It's, it's let's go camping. Really? Now, in his defense, I will say this, just to... to, to not make fun of Peter completely. If I was ever going to go camping again, it would take something like this for that to occur. You guys know my great love of camping. If Jesus and Moses and Elijah are to sign up uh, for the men's camping retreat this fall, I'm in. I will even personally set up their tents, but until I see that, I am still holding out for a night at the West End or maybe the 31st Street Hilton. Um, either of those venues would be much closer to heaven than any camping trip. And any camping trip we've ever taken has been a whole lot closer to, uh, well, North Carolina. I mean, it's way, it's way down there, right by the state line. Wait, what did you think I was going to say? 
We digress. <laughs> the point here is that he's just saying something. He, he's not thinking. In fact, he's terrified. So, so let's not overanalyze it. All, all of this, though, has just been a, a prelude to the grand finale, if you will. It, it would seem that the situation couldn't get any more amazing, but then it does, because Mark writes again very specifically that a cloud overshadows the mountain and that a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Who, who's speaking here? Okay, it's God the Father. And, and technically, I don't think this is the complete statement because if you compare all of the gospel writers, they all give just a little different variation of what is said at this moment. So I think the... The complete statement is something like this. This is my beloved son, my chosen one, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's if you take them all and put them together. That's what you end up with. Mark sort of just gets to the point here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is God speaking audibly to men. And it's interesting, there's only two other incidents in the Gospels where God does this. One is at Jesus' baptism where he says something very similar. Remember, Jesus is coming up out of the water. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He, he affirms Jesus at that moment. There's a second incident in John chapter 12 where God speaks from heaven saying that he will glorify his name. This kind of thing is very rare in the New Testament. That God speaks, he personally, audibly speaks from heaven to men like this himself. It's rare in the Old Testament as well. God often speaks through people and prophets, but it's not really all that common, and yet he does that here. He affirms the true identity of Jesus. This is my beloved son. And he commands the disciples to listen to him. And that he commands them to listen and not look. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because everything in the context, everything that's happening, would seem to draw your attention to what your eyes can take in. Jesus is shining like the sun. Moses and Elijah are there. You would assume in the context that, that his appearance and, and what's happening before their eyes would be the most important thing at this particular moment, and yet it's not. The Father calls the disciples' attention not to, to Jesus' appearance, but to his message. Listen to him. Listen to what he's saying about his death, his suffering, his rejection, his resurrection, my plan. Listen. Don't look, listen. The revelation of all of those things is important. And as we saw last week, it's, it was God's plan all along that his son would overcome our greatest foe, sin, by, by being rejected and suffering and dying. And that he would spread that kingdom then to every nation on earth. My beloved son, listen to him. And then there's silence. Suddenly, Mark writes, they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The, the cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is back to his normal form. It's over. And they begin to walk back down the mountain. Mark writes, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And let me just make two quick observations. Number one, I think, I'm not sure, but I think this is the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells someone, hey, listen, don't say anything, and they actually do it. I mean, Mark specifically says that, that they kept the matter to themselves. So this is probably, <laughs> this might be the only time in Mark where someone actually does what Jesus says in regards to not going out and telling what had just happened. But number two, 
notice that they're still confused. Probably even more so coming down the mountain than they were going up. And they're questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And to be clear, I don't think they're confused as to what resurrection means. The Pharisees of Jesus' day believed in resurrection. They would teach that, that the righteous one day would be raised by God to enjoy life with him forever. I think they understand what resurrection is, what the word rising here means. I think it's the word dead that's confusing them still. <laughs> what do you mean you're going you're gonna to die? They still can't put these ideas of, of suffering and rejection and death together with their ideas of glory and power and authority that they have been expecting all along. They're confused. So they ask him a question. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And to understand this question, I think you need to remember what it is that Elijah was supposed to do. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, and I'm not going to rehearse all of that with us, or I'm not going back to Malachi to read it again, but basically he's supposed to do three things. He's supposed to prepare the way of the Lord. He's supposed to make his path straight. In other words, get it, make it clear, show what, what's going to happen. And he's supposed to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and vice versa. In other words, calling people back to right relationship, okay, right basically repentance, if we could put in a little different sense. So, so he's supposed to get things ready for the coming of the king. And what, what's he getting ready for then, Jesus, if you're saying that the king is going to die? That's really the question. They understood it, what, what, that Elijah was supposed to come, but they're confused now. Why would he come prepare the way for a king if the king is going to die? Do you understand the question? What's the, what's the point? And so they're asking here about the purpose of, of what's going on, what the Old Testament had said. Uh, they're so confused. And notice Jesus' response. First, he affirms two undeniable truths of the Old Testament. Number one, he says the Old Testament does teach that Elijah will first come to restore all things. Okay, you can't deny that. Old Testament said it. It's going to happen. Elijah will come. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to make the, the path straight, but just maybe not in the way they expected. Hold that thought in a moment because number two... At the same time, the Old Testament also teaches that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And it's as if, as Jordan said this morning, the disciples have forgotten that part of the story. But, but this is exactly what Isaiah was, was saying in that passage that Jordan read, that the Messiah would come and he would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, that he would be acquainted with grief, that, that he would be oppressed and afflicted and cut off, and that he would be pierced and wounded and crushed for us. That's not a New Testament concept. The Old Testament made that clear, but the disciples are ignoring all of that. They're forgetting all of that. All they're seeing is glory and greatness and power, paying no attention to the clear teaching of the scriptures regarding the suffering of the Messiah. And now, having affirmed these two clear, undeniable truths of the Old Testament, he puts them together in a way that I'm sure the disciples never saw coming. He says, I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, just as it's written of him. Uh, who, who and what is he talking about? Who is he talking about first? Okay, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is who he's referring to. He, remember, remember him? He, he looked like Elijah. What did he wear back in Mark chapter 1? Uh, camel's hair and a leather goat around his, his waist. He acted like Elijah. What did he eat? Locusts and wild honey. He operated where Elijah operated. Where was that? 
in the wilderness. And he preached like Elijah. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Repent. Believe. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 verse 14, if you want to write a reference down here, confirms that John the Baptist was the Elijah figure that was supposed to come. And you know, whatever, um, I forgot, what happened to Elijah? Oh, I remember. Or John the Baptist, excuse me. He went on and experienced great glory and great power and authority and everything was wonderful for him, right? No? No, that's not it. Hold on. Oh yeah, I remember now. Never mind. Oops. It was quite the opposite. He was rejected by the rulers. He suffered and he died. They, they did to him whatever they wanted. Do you realize what that means? That means that John the Baptist or Elijah really did prepare the way of the Lord. <laughs> he really did prepare the way that the, that the Messiah was going to come and walk. Not only did he come first proclaiming a message of repentance and belief, always pointing to someone greater who would come after him, to, who would preach even greater message, but he's also the first to suffer and be rejected by the rulers and die for that message. And in so doing, Jesus indicates that he is pointing to someone greater who would come after him and experience the same fate. Guess what? Jesus is about to walk that path of being rejected by the rulers of suffering and dying. Even though it's clear, it's clear in the Old Testament, the disciples have it all wrong. They're expecting that Elijah will come and make everything awesome so that the Messiah can come and be the conquering king. Not that Elijah would come and make a path straight to suffering and death for the Messiah to follow as well. Clearly, they have a lot to learn. Now, how should we understand all of this? I think we should understand this scene for what it is intended to be, which is a, a picture of the fact that in Jesus Glory and suffering, power and weakness go hand in hand with no contradiction, no, no difficulty, no problem. That there will be no glory, in fact, apart from suffering. And that through Jesus' weakness, we will find the source of great power. Those ideas felt so contradictory to the disciples. They expected God to establish a kingdom of sort of their imagination and their choosing. But in reality... God had a much different plan. This is a picture where God is revealing both himself and his plan to his people. Note that, because remember how both last week and even today, I've drawn your attention to certain specific pieces of information in this story. For example, a certain number of days, six, a certain number of people who went with Jesus, three, Peter, James, and John, a certain place in Mount. Remember, I've kept emphasizing that point. May I take just a moment to compare this event to another one? Let's think together about another great moment in the Bible where God reveals both himself and his plan to his people. Let's think about Moses receiving the law for a minute. In Exodus 24, where they're going up to confirm the covenant, okay? They're going up to confirm the covenant. Moses is made to wait, guess how many days before he goes up the mountain? Six. Guess where it happens? On a mountain. Guess how many named men are commanded to accompany him up the mountain? Three, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. 
God appears to him in a cloud on the mountain. God speaks to him from the cloud. It's a very private event similar to this. Very few people witness it. And when Moses descends, we don't know what it looks like at the top, but when he descends, what's changed about his appearance? You remember? He's shining. He's shining from having stood in the presence of God. So you assume from that whatever you'd like. I'm kind of assuming that God's presence must have been amazing to stand before. When you compare the similarities between the transfiguration story and what happened when God revealed himself and his plan to his people there on Mount Sinai, I'm telling you folks, it is amazing how similar the two events are. Clearly, God has ordered the events of this particular night to remind the disciples, to remind us of that other great revelation of himself and his plan. Can I show you something even more amazing now? Like, a lot more amazing? Rather than comparing back to the events of Sinai, can we compare ahead to the events of another mountaintop now, that being Golgotha? Whereas the transfiguration is a very private event, right? Very few people witness it. What happens on Golgotha is a very public event. It's a public spectacle where Jesus is put on display before the nation for all to see. On this mountain, Jesus is surrounded by two prophets, Moses and Elijah. On the next mountain, he's going to be surrounded by two thieves, one on either side of him. On one mountain, his garments are going to shine like pure light, like no bleacher on earth could ever clean them. On the other mountain, his clothes are stripped from him and are gambled over by the the soldiers. He is left to hang naked before the people, compounding his shame. In one scene, three male disciples view his glory at close range. In the other scene, three female disciples watch his suffering from afar. And at the end of the transfiguration story, the divine voice comes from the cloud declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. And at the end of the crucifixion story, one of his executioners does the same. The similarities and differences between these story, this story and these other two scenes of God's revelation of himself and his plan to his people are too many and too specific to be coincidental, I think. On the one mountain Sinai, God revealed himself and his plan to his people, Israel. He gave them the law, and in so doing, he made them his own. Israel gloried in this moment. It was glorious as God's full presence enveloped the mountain. There's fire, there's rumblings. This was in the mind of the Jews of Jesus' day, the moment that God established Israel as a nation and as a kingdom before him. They gloried, they gloried, folks, in the law and in all that God had done for them on that mountaintop. And by any human standard you could consider, that first revelation of God and his plan to his people, (laughs) that was amazing. But may I remind us this morning that that second mountain, Golgotha, despite all of its ugliness and the humiliation and brutality and shame, is far far more glorious. Because there, for a second time, God revealed himself and his plan to his people. And this time, he didn't give them a law. This time, he gave his own son to pay the penalty of the curse of the law that all of us had rightly deserved. And in so doing, he made a way not just for one nation, but for everyone to be made his own. 
And while to human eyes, clearly this looked like a defeat that day, I'm telling you that this moment on Golgotha was truly glorious. And we should glory in this moment because this is the moment that God established Jesus as being the king and us as being his kingdom. And we don't glory in the law anymore. Now we glory in the cross and in all that God did for us on that mountaintop. The disciples wanted the blessings and benefits of being with and identifying with and following Jesus They just didn't want to have to go through all the suffering and the pain and the humiliation and toil that was actually going to be associated with it, both for Jesus and for them. (laughs) But I'm telling you, what they saw at that particular moment as being defeat was actually victory. His humiliation would become the source of our exaltation. His suffering would become the source of our comfort. His rejection would become the source of our acceptance and his death would become the source, the means of our new life. And so we do what seems foolish to just about everyone around us, what has seemed foolish now for 2,000 years. We glory in the tool of execution. We glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment? Do not miss the fact, church, that God chose in his eternal plan and his eternal wisdom to make the source of every spiritual blessing we could possibly have to root it, to source it in the 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 suffering, the, the weakness of his son. If you're still here this morning and you're trying to achieve some victory before God, some relationship with him, some righteousness with him on your own, you think that you have some strength in you to, to cause that to happen, look simply at his plan and realize you have been a fool. There is no hope in you or in any act we could ever perform God made the greatest source of of weakness, the actual source of strength. And all he has called you to do this morning is to place all of your hope in that weakness. The weakness of Jesus, which is stronger than any man. It was through his sacrifice on your behalf that you can be forgiven. Stop stop trying to do this on your own. Stop, Stop your pride, stop your arrogance, and fall at the feet of Jesus putting all your hope and trust in him. And for for you believers in here, (laughs) I could say all the same stuff to us. We continue to strive to to perfect ourselves and our righteousness and our sanctification on our own. Don't you see? We couldn't do it. The greatest source of strength we have is in the weakness of Jesus. And he wants you simply to fall on him, to rely on him and need him for everything. And so as I pray, if you're an unbeliever this morning, I pray. I beg you, Spirit, open their eyes to see their need for you. If, if they're believers this morning, help them to still see their need for you. We never move past this. We, we always have to come back in glory in the cross of Jesus. That is our power. Father, we come now and we give you this time in the word. 
we ask that you do in our hearts what no words of man could ever do. Only the words of, of God, your words can do to open our eyes to see the glory and the power of the cross to change our hearts and lives forever. Forgive us for, for placing our hope in ourselves and for, for trying to be things on our own that we could never be. We, we are dependent on you start to finish. And that's what we need to see today. So thank you for this beautiful picture of how glory and suffering, power and weakness come together in the person of Jesus. May it be the thing that not, does not leave our hearts and minds this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.